and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 80, where we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or pick us up from iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and direct from Media Man via Galactobite Digital Mega Transfer. Huh? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. This one, uh, this one was picked by uh, Darren Murphy, Murphy, uh, who writes about Red Hood and Daredevil. He's also a staff writer at the Batman Universe. Uh, you can reach him at Darren Murphy on Twitter. Yeah, that's D E R O N. If that's yes. any help for, we're, we're trying to say his name correctly. That's right. He often he's, 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 he kind of has a special D Ron name going back to yes. the Weird Science podcast, <laughs> but he is Darren. Uh, be sure to stick around to the end of this episode we got a special interview with one time DC Comics editor and production director Bob Rosakis but the book mm-hmm. we are talking about today is Batman Digital Justice published by DC Comics as an original graphic novel in February 1990 it's by Pepe Marino with additional design by Javier Romero cover price 2495 uh, USD 3095 Canadian yeah not a cheap book, especially for Not 1990, folks. Not even no. a cheap book in 2018. So. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's break it down and talk about Pepe Marino. Saturnino Marino was born in 1959 in Valencia, Spain. He began drawing comics as a child, and he would contribute to local horror magazines when he was a teenager. After high school, he got a job in an advertising firm. However, he did attend engineering school at night at his father's insistence. When he hit 20, Pepe was drafted into the Spanish Army. He was assigned to a cartography unit in North Africa. After being discharged, he traveled Europe a bit and uh, was even a DJ for a while. Then, in 1977, he came to America. That's right. Though he was offered work by DC and Warren, he accepted Warren's offer. Uh, those are the guys that did Creepy, Eerie, Vampirella, those kind of books. So, mm-hmm. uh, Pepe Marino drove around the country learning English and drawing for those very magazines. Settling in the San Francisco area during the height of American punk rock's popularity, he did some collage work, some of which was used for flyers and album art. Pepe's early underground artwork in the San Francisco Bay was featured at the Smithsonian Institution, and there, the Museum of Modern Art in France has a permanent exhibition of Pepe's fine art. Hmm. So, in San Francisco, Pepe introduced produced an art magazine called NART which stood for no art. It utilized what was then a new technology, the Xerox copier. He also played bass in a punkabilly band. Yeah, what's a lot of punkabilly there, Chris? I love saying the word. <laughs> I do, me too. <laughs> I, I, I might start uh, just, just to say the word. Uh, Marino had some pieces published in Heavy Metal Magazine, the best of which were collated, cl- later collected in Zeppelin, which is a book of uh, his work basically collected and a series that was called Generation Zero for Epic Illustrated. Yes, in 1982, Marino moved to New York City, at which time he had a red 1967 Cadillac, which his uh, biography really wants you to know. Yeah. It's it's funny in doing these uh, biography uh, checks here, <laughs> how how scarily specific some of them get. Like we like we know like what three or four of Peter David's home addresses? Yeah, I know. Sometimes they, they just the weirdest <laughs> things they include. Typically with Kirby, you know, like everywhere he lived in New York. Yep, it's all tagged. Uh, now, while in New York, Marino uh, created the graphic novel 
three gra- uh, three graphic novels: Rebel, Joe's Air Force, and Gene Kong. Uh, he also did some work in animation, designing uh, characters for Tiger Sharks, Thundercats (two words), and Silverhawks. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of two-worded titles there. Uh, we don't think this is the same Thundercats you're thinking of. You know, the no. one with Lion O and Mumra. But we've been wrong a couple uh, times before. But I'm pretty sure this is like the uh, you know the the pharmacy store version of this that. is the dollar store version. <laughs> they all have mustaches. Uh, then uh, he would get into computer art, and he made the book we're going to talk about today, Batman Digital Justice. Now Pepe has worked published in books and magazines such as Metal Hurlant, which is a uh, that's heavy metal uh, right. in Europe, yep. and Leco de Savanes in Europe. Uh, Pepe developed the PC video game Hellcab. Uh, that was completed in 1993. Hellcab was an interactive uh, time travel adventure with a moral twist. It was published by Warner New Media on CD-ROM. Uh, Hellcab would be one of the first ever CD-ROM video games. Now, in uh, October 2013, Pepe started Paella Sundays as part of a growing Spanish food revival in Los Angeles. And he also won the best Paella Valenciana in California in 2016. In uh, 2015, Pepe collaborated with the late, great Richard Duardo, known as the West Coast Warhol, and they produced a series of fine art prints of his work. Also in 2016, uh, Pepe was awarded a long, uh, year-long art commission for the Valencia Opera House that would cover the 2016-2017 season. And that's all we got on the guy. I'm sure that he had to have done more, especially in that weird gap we have and from sure. 93 to 2013. But <laughs> couldn't find anything, folks. So if you're out there, Pepe, give us a call. Now, uh, Digital Just- Batman Digital Justice, its claim to fame, its big, you know, truly gimmick is that it's the first ever completely computer created comic book right is that am i saying it in the best way possible uh i i think i think so yeah everything there was was done on screen and then from there they were able to print it and we'll get into some of that methodology later but it was not the first ever computer drawn comic Mm -hmm. and we thought we'd give that one a nod to maybe someday we'll even do an issue of these on uh the the um Podcast, but before there was Batman Digital Justice, there was Shatter, published by First Comics, the first all computer drawn comic. This had 14 issues, December 1985 to April 1988, written by Peter B. Gillis. Artwork by Mike Sens, who left after three issues to create software. Then it was Steve Irwin, Bob Dienthal, Charlie Athenis, who actually drew pages traditionally that were then scanned and colored on the computer. And they were even given sort of like computer edges. They kind of yeah. applied a weird filter to them. Uh, Shadow was drawn on the Macintosh Plus and Mac Paint and later using full paint by Ann Arbor Softworks. Page data was stored on an external 800K floppy disk drive. Now, the drawings were difficult to manage due to limited 9-inch 72 PPI monochrome screen. That's a 512 by 342 pixels, as only roughly two-thirds of the page was available to be worked on at a single time. Yeah, which must be annoying which, a second. Oh, could you imagine? <laughs> yeah. Now, <laughs> approximately half of the issues were drawn using the standard Macintosh mouse, which, oh boy, uh, <laughs> that's got to be such a such an exercise, yeah. uh, until uh, graphics tablet pen-type digital 
became available. Artwork was printed on an Apple dot matrix image writer, and uh, it's pretty obvious when you see it. Yeah. Uh, now, until 1985, when Apple donated a laser writer enabling Adobe PostScript font styles for typesetting text and made illustration graphics smoother and less pixelated. Now, once colored by Sains on the computer, the pages were printed and photographed, then traditional printing prep methods applied. Again, this is only those first three issues. Uh, now, color separations were made, and we'll explain what that is a little bit later on, which were then imposed onto printing plates, and again, more on that later. Yeah, we have a whole thing about how the comics get made coming up later on, but let's jump right into this issue, because like we said, this is an OGN, so it ain't short. It ain't, I wouldn't even no. call it an issue. It's really more of a little book, so. Yes. <laughs> uh, Batman Digital Justice 1990, drawn and colored entirely on a Macintosh Mac 2, with aid from 3D imaging software provided by LucasArts. Ripped direct to plate by Anaya Systems. It's a hardback book, approximately 196 pages, so it doesn't have a cover. Technically, it has a jacket. Yes. And on that jacket is a picture of Digital Batman from the story, and he does have the worst Batman logo ever created in the <laughs> Right, I would say. Have you seen a worse one? Uh, no, I have not. The one I didn't like before, the, my, my previously most hated one would have been Azriel's. Sure. Uh, which uh, I love that one now. That one compared to this one, this one looks like uh, a really uh, the logo for a really bad uh, off brand of soda. So uh, it's just to describe it's green with jagged purple triangles. The lettering is like something you might have doodled on your loose leaf notebook as a kid. And uh, sort of a product of its time, but that doesn't make it look good. No. Now, after some uh, brown end sheets with a design that evokes circuitry, which is carried over into the pre-printed case cover under the dust jacket, the title page, and a quick introduction by Mike Gold, editor of Shatter, we uh, dive right into the future. And it looks like a motherboard. Uh, it may indeed be a motherboard. <laughs> it's unclear as to what the, is real in this uh, digital world here. Yeah. Uh, we don't know what's real and what is digital. Uh, the, there are polygon-rendered things hovering high above this thing that looks like a city, which is sort of what a motherboard looks like up close. Uh, it's If you've ever seen Tron, it's kind of like that. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> maybe we'll just let the book describe it and let's, see let's, if that helps us let's out. Let's hope for the best here. Uh, Gotham Megatropolis, sometime into the next century. Welcome to Futureland. Take a ride on the Progress Express. Around you is an apparently perfect world, but this is a make-believe world with vengeance, a world with no soul and no heart that beats in binary code. One or zero, God or the void. A complex and wired world dominated by a tyrant code, a computer virus from long ago that has become the world's first digital dictator. The only hope is a myth from the past, from a time of legend and superstition, long before the virus plagues. A new kind of hero, a program of clean code and pure memory, a program written by a legendary crime fighter, a digital hero, one that re will restore digital truth and digital justice. Well, uh, no, that did not help. Did not uh, no. <laughs> it seems like there's a drug deal going down at uh, the video game arcade, uh, known as the Arcade. Uh, we got some guy in cornrows and goggles selling to a guy in a Russian hat, and another guy in goggles and a trench coat. All of this is being watched by police officer Lena Schwartz. She's on site, 
and it's also being watched remotely by her partner, Sergeant Jim Gordon. This is uh, our Jim Gordon's grandson. Yeah, we'll just put that out there. That's a reveal later in the issue, but we'll just say it. Yeah, he's not the mummified (laughs) real guy here. Uh, Now, the year is never stated, but based on the references we get, it's uh, about 2040, maybe 2050. Something like that, yeah. Uh, Lena is talking to Jim and says, It's going down, Jim! Those two extra bots gonna be a problem? To which Jim says, Negative, Lena, but keep an eye on Farrell. He's new to all this. Right. There is another cub there, a rookie named Farrell. We actually don't get a good look at him, and as we'll find out soon, it doesn't matter what he looks like at all. It's moot. Uh, The drug deal's going down, and the involved parties are arguing on the type of money to be tendered. One side wants to use credits, the other wants to use something other than credits. I don't, I'm unclear what the other option is. Uh, the deal is arranged and exchanged uh, for a pre-virus copy of Chandler, whatever that is. Uh, it's actually on a three-and-a-half-inch floppy disk. I like these little touches of these little stupid disks, uh, yeah. even though it's a future story made me nostalgic for the 1990s. Uh, the drug, a mind steroid, changes hands while being transferred. Uh, Jim Gordon scans it with something and confirms that it's an illegal drug. Now, but before he and the team can swarm RK, some servos show up. Now, servos are these floating police robots that protect and serve Gotham Megatropolis. They're outfitted with mini guns and are never prone to making any kind of legislative mistakes. Except for recently, when they've been tearing into innocent people due to a glitch. Oopsie. Yeah. <laughs> All we gotta say is they look really dumb. Yeah. Uh, one of the many one of the many times that flat polygons are terribly blended with what looks like maybe a 32-bit paint program. I'd be, I was being very generous. I feel like they would go 32-bit for this. It could be 16-bit. You're right. I don't know. <laughs> well, just stick with the paint program. They, they made a. They made spinning propeller, uh, propeller beanie hats here. So, yeah, these uh, servos look like kind of like mushrooms with like a propeller on them. They look really bad. Yes. Now the servos tear into the drug dealers and the rookie cop that we now get a pretty good look at after Jim Gordon runs into the room. Uh, he looks like a pile of pink jelly. Yeah, Lena says, Jim, thank God you're here. They just opened up. Caught Farrell in the line of fire. He and the servos look like they're itching to fire on Jim and Lena, too. Yeah, Gordon goes, I'm police, Bitbox. What the, what in the hell do you think? The servo says, reference procedure AA23. Identify within 10 seconds. 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4. Jim whips out his police ID badge, and the servo stands down. Jim asks the robot what he's doing in this no AC zone, but doesn't get a response. I wouldn't want to be in the always AC zone either, especially not in July. I'll tell you oh, what, well, no, you know? no. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's an establishing shot of the city again. It sort of looks like a motherboard. Um, it also really uh, sucks as an establishing shot since you can't pick out any landmarks or points of interest. No. It's just a mass. There's <laughs> a big black thing with dots on it, really, just uh, nothing to look at. <laughs> now, now, somewhere within this mass of nothing, Jim and Lena speak. Careful, Jim. I don't trust these things. You don't trust them, Lena. They just chopped Farrell and... That's over. Mellow out. You can't reason with the damn things. Call the captain. Let him handle this. Well, you brought it up, Lena, right? No, really. <laughs> this is Snaps your deal. Out on him. What's going on? 
<laughs> Jim does just that. He calls the captain by inserting a card into a slot just below a Bell Atlantic symbol. Yeah, but I thought this was cute. A Bell Atlantic yeah. Corporation was created as one of the original regional Bell operating companies in 1984 during the breakup of the phone company the Monopoly under the Bell system. Bell Atlantic's original roster of operating companies included the Bell Telephone Company of Pennsylvania, New Jersey Bell, Diamond State Telephone, and C&P uh, Telephone, which was itself had four subsidiaries under it. The baby Bells. Yeah. Now, uh, Bell Atlantic originally operated in the states of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, West Virginia, and Virginia, as well as Washington, D.C. In 1996, CEO and chairman uh, Raymond W. Smith orchestrated Bell Atlantic's merger with 9X. Now, Bell, Bell Atlantic changed his name to Verizon Communications in June of 2000 when the Federal Communications Commission approved a $64.7 billion acquisition of telephone company GTE. Ooh, so, yeah, if you're using Verizon, you're using the old vestige of Bell Atlantic. Indeed. Uh, so the captain, he's not too responsive to Jim Gordon's blustery anger. In fact, he suggests Tim that Jim take a trank. Is that police procedure? I don't know. Uh, he, <laughs> he wants Jim Gordon to let the Internal Affairs Department handle it, although he admits they're unlikely to find anything. Just then, a floating news camera approaches, and it says, Sergeant Gordon Topper, flight here for WNTC News. God, the press. Just what I needed. Could you give our viewers some idea of what's just happened here? It's like, good job gathering information, robot. Like, you really showed up unprepared for this one. <laughs> Who are you and what are you doing here? You know, like, <laughs> Jim says, so you guys are ignoring the free action zones too. Why not? Ah, see, free AC zones are free action zones. We can only infer that these are places robots are not supposed to tread. Yes, uh, Gordon continues. As for what happened, the state-of-the-art enforcer servo just ignored procedure and blew one of my men and four perps to hell and gone. I see. Perhaps some human error? Human error? Seems like Jim Gordon is being watched very closely by robots. Yeah, I mean, there's one right there filming him. No, I mean, there are other robots. But it's like a foot away from Gordon. Yeah, but elsewhere they're doing like a super close-up of his eyeball. and I'm sure there's like six other robot cameras looking at him right now. I'm, I'm sure there's like two or three looking at me. It's true, it's true. There are, but there, <laughs> there's no uh, dearth of robot cameras in this universe. So while Jim continues to rant against the broken system, he's being watched by Media Man, who we will sort of meet later on. He lives in a really bad model of Seattle Space Needle. Uh, like, really bad. Remember the graphics from Superman 64? Yes, Purple Skies. This is like that. This is very much like that. Uh, he changes the media to whatever the governor of corporate masters decide they want people to see and hear. And right now he's working on Gordon's recorded outburst. Later, Lena's driving Jim home in a really bad-looking squad hover car. Yeah, Jim goes, Lena, this is the third damn time this month once of those, one of those servos went out of control. How can it be a coincidence? Come on, Jim. You know how old those systems are. Maybe there's a bad track somewhere. Maybe the whole program just needs to be reinitialized. Re Maybe you gotta pull the cartridge out and blow on it. Maybe rub it with alcohol, That's shift it back to the That's what I would do, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now Jim goes... Don't give me that. We know that Mastery does daily backups and bootstraps. It can't be a system problem. Something must be overriding the tracking programs. That's impossible. Yeah? So tell me. So they tell me. But someone is doing it. If we could just figure out why. 
I would think who and how would be pertinent questions too. I mean, really the whole thing, basically. Well, one at a time, I guess. Well, everything in its everything in its time. <laughs> say why first, okay? Easy <laughs> stop. Sure, you don't want any company. Get some of the tension out. Damn it, Lena! You know the rules, which uh, we're guessing is that he only has sex on Saturdays right. while while wearing his socks. That's it. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I know the rules. It's your loss, and you're off tomorrow, right? I guess I'll see you the day after. Jim disembarks and transfers 28 credits to his card. Uh, this, is, this is the utterly pointless way to withdraw cash in the future. Right? I mean, <laughs> why Why would you transfer money? Just Why doesn't your card just have access to all Just swipe things? the card. Just... <laughs> now, Gordon works past a row of vending machines that act as a market before reaching his apartment building. Uh, it sort of looks like theatrical curtains. The way it's built, uh, like this weird, yeah. kind of like a C shape, as you have to see it to understand. Yes, uh, just then, a kid whooshes by on a skateboard. Why, it's Bobby Chang, neighborhood rascal and scamp. He's being pursued hmm. by a gang called the Neo Surfers. Uh, just imagine what you might think a gang called the Neo Surfers would look like in a low-budget 16-bit video game, and that's these guys, basically, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Gordon goes, well, well, look who's here. Hey, Pixel Puss, your ass is ours. Neo Surfers, aren't you out of your territory? Well, we've expanded. Now show some brains and get out of our way. I'm too tired for this gigo crap. You know the rules. No draft unless the turf is invaded. Any beachheads I don't know about? That's the stuff, Gordon. Confuse them with gobbledygook until they just walk away. <laughs> They're just going to scratch their heads. Like, what? All right. <laughs> no beachheads. Just a Q-head who rides one of our boards and tries to tell my troops what to do. Then runs and hides behind some cop. And Bob Chang says, I don't have to hide behind anyone, Vinhead. I could de-res you anytime. Mute it right now. One more word and I go official. On all of you. You copy? And once inside the building, Bob thanks Gordon for his assistance. Uh, he offers some company for a televised Gata concert, but Jim says he's too tired for it. He says he'll have the phone disc it, and we assume that means to record it somehow. That makes sense. Sure. <laughs> uh, now, once inside, uh, the, the machine thing says it has uh, stored a bunch of television for him to see. As, uh, his TiVo, I guess. Right. Uh, <laughs> including his recent appearance on the news, which has been completely augmented. Even gives him a smiling face, which we know he did not have. Yeah, I don't think he ever had it, yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> then he watches uh, some other news segments. Uh, the neo-neo-Nazis are causing trouble around the city, as you'd figure someone called the neo-neo-Nazis right. might do. Uh, a bunch of fans killed themselves at a Gata concert, uh, this time without being mind-controlled, and a commercial. It's a picture of one of those servo robots with computery lettering that reads uh, MP-E10 COP shown across it. Yeah, and a voiceover says, Are the streets safer tonight? We think so, and we're proud of what we see. Since the Mod 3 Servo Enforcer unit took the streets in 1994, the crime rate has decreased by 70%. Thanks to Servo Enforcers, Gotham is again a safe place to live. Remember, here at Servo, we keep an eye on you 24 hours a day. If we didn't do that, who would? 
Now, this lovely commercial is enough to put Jim Gordon fast to sleep on his couch. Almost put me fast to sleep on the mic, too. I know it. Uh, while Gordon sleeps, a rich executive and a prostitute walk through the park. Uh, the executive says he hasn't been there since the 20s. We The 2020s. Uh, a guy with a horribly scarred face lies in wait for them. He steps out and tries to mug the rich guy who was surprisingly recalcitrant to hand over his valuables. Uh, like, how do you think he got rich, though, giving everything away? I mean, I guess sure. he's got to hang on to what he's got. Just then, the criminal notices a shadow looming behind him, and he turns around to see the silhouette of Batman. The next morning, Lena has called Jim Gordon on his video phone while he has her back to her doing sit-ups. Which strikes us as a little rude, right? Yeah, uh, like yeah it's just not, face, not a good thing to do. At least yeah. do sit-ups facing her, for God's sake. Sure. Uh, uh, Jim Gordon is look pretty ripped, too, by the way, in case you're wondering. Mm-hmm. For, he looks like he might be uh, about 40, but he's got the bod of a 20-year-old. Anyway, uh, turns out that the three folks in the park last night got ripped apart by a servo enforcer. And this is the first time they've ever passed judgment in the park. It must be a no-act zone or mm. no-AC zone. So, despite it being his day off... Jim Gordon makes his way to the crime scene, which is swarming with various servo robot, robots, all looking just awful. Uh, seems there's a statue erected in, in homage to Batman in the park, and the servo rose behind it before opening up on the hapless people. And now the head of the Batman statue lies on the ground. Jim Gordon feeds some uh, some of the human goop into a pocket calculator and is able to pull up DNA profiles on two of them. However, not the third. How do they even know that it was three people then, right? It's like, this is a mass of meat. Yeah, this is the I, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There could have been nine, there could have been one. I don't there know could... how you could tell. <laughs> uh, maybe they just counted the shoes. I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> back at headquarters, Lena chats with Jim Gordon about last night's Gata concert. And Jim remembers he forgot to phone videotape it, whatever that was he said. Darn it. So Lena says he can borrow her copy. No biggie. Further examination of the DNA at the police headquarters proves interesting. Lena can extract the full DNA profile from the perpetrator and the prostitute, but the third guy has no DNA profile at all. Like, they can't even extract it. Not, there's not one on file. Just nothing comes up in the reader. Jim is also looking into the servo enforcers, only to find they are controlled remotely. Uh, which we probably would have guessed by now, right? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean think, we're not detectives or anything. Do you think there's like gnomes working inside there or something? Like, <laughs> how else did that would have worked? There's hamsters on wheels. <laughs> I mean, I would have figured whatever whatever makes them, uh, you know, radio-controlled helicopters go, same kind of thing. But uh, just then, Captain Grover hollers Gordon into his office. Yeah, Gordon goes, I hope this is important, Captain. I was on the brink of... Shut the door. What the hell are you doing? My terminal tells me somebody's illegally accessing the mainframe, and I find you. Isn't this your day off? Didn't I tell you to let IAD take care of this enforcer thing? Wait a minute. Shana called me in it. There are expert systems walking around the clock on this. This mouth is at code level, and you're just ticking them off. They're threatening to cut terminal access and... Threatening your cussy job? Your nice view? That's enough. You know, Commissioner Gordon was quite a cop. He gave me my chance on the force. I owe him, and I cut you slack because he was your grandfather, but... Leave my family out of this. The bottom line is you can plan to cover up while machines downtown clean up their mess, right? Give it a rest, Gordon. Drop it before they kick both me and you out, and you know they would. To help you do that, I've got a nice, quiet assignment for you, straight from the mayor herself. Captain Grover prints out a picture of a mostly nude woman in an ancient Egyptian pharaoh's headdress and pasties on her nipples. 
You recognize Gata? Well, there have been some threats, and we don't want anything to happen to a celebrity now, do we? You make sure she's safe until I tell you otherwise, clear? Now get out of here! So that's Gata. Yeah. Uh, Jim Gordon splits after spewing a few epithets and heads down into the subway where all the screens advertise Gata. Uh, he tries to withdraw money from an ATM, but it gives him some trouble. So he gives the machine a swift kick, and that's uh, something uh, we all, we've all we all been there before, whether it's a candy machine or a money machine. We it's, all kick them at times, yeah. The, the kicking is the best response. Uh, now, this activates the area's self-defense systems, which luckily we don't have yet. Uh, <laughs> this orders him to get his card and split, or deadly force will commence. And then on every screen, a Joker smile appears, and laughter is heard. Uh, it's a really crappy Joker smile rendered in polygons. Uh, looks like looks more like those uh, novelty chattering teeth. It does, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> like it just looks awful. I'm looking uh, for the thing to wind them up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you'll be seeing more of them later. But now <laughs> we head into chapter two. This thing has chapters? That's right, Chris. It's a deluxe hardcover book. Highbrow stuff. Right. So, opening at a Gata show, which seems attended entirely by murderous punk rock mutants. Uh, music is for everyone, after all. It is. is. Uh, Gata is seen as the, at the, as the precise image printed from police headquarters. Like, <laughs> to the pixel, folks. Precise. Uh, possibly projected holographically. And there's a screen <laughs> behind her that might be close up on her face. This is a really highly produced concert, folks. It is. Now, bored with doing his job, Jim decides to give Lena a call and see if she's dug up anything new. And she has. Seems that just before each Servo massacre, someone using untraceable codes has been having clandestine telepresence meetings. And uh, that's a bad thing for some reason. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, while Jim's gabbing on the phone, the concert is interrupted. Oh, man, now he's asked to do his job. Dang it. Uh, The thugs come and in and lay down automatic gunfire, murdering Gata fans indiscriminately, though a lot of them were probably going to commit suicide at the show anyway, so. Yeah, it looks like that kind of show. Uh, Now, Jim shoots out the lights, but one of the gunmen has Gata in his infrared sights. Uh, She's not concerned, and now we can see that she really looks like Grace Slick. Yeah, Gata says, Do you think you're scaring me? I'm Gata. I don't care. Shoot. Go ahead. I dare you. Get down. Damn you, I said get down. Jim rushes over and pushes Gata out of the way just as the gunfire lets loose. Do you want to get killed? Some Gata fans tear the shooter apart limb from limb. Yeah, one of the gunmen goes, The freak's got Sal. And the other one says, Yeah, and I'm running low on ammo. Let's interwive before they catch up with us. Gata is not pleased about having her life saved. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, honestly, we're not too thrilled about it either. Yeah, though, to be fair, it was the shoving that she detests the most, she says. Yeah. Keep your hands off of me. What do you think you're doing? Nobody touches me. Who are you? Jim thinks to himself, God, doesn't she ever shut up? And then says out loud, Damn it, stay down. I just saved your life. Look, I'm a cop. I'll explain later. I mean, I think that would be enough explanation, but all right. I'd stop asking questions. Pretty much. Also, the gunfire would be a real clue that uh, something had gone wrong here. But uh, Something is not good, yeah. Jim draws his gun on the two remaining shooters, and they surrender, but then a servo enforcer shows up and... Well, I mean, you know what happens every time they show up. This time, (laughs) the two of them use microwaves to burn the guys to ash. That's neat. Uh, It does hinder any possible DNA collection, though. Hmm. 
Well, later, Gata is still busting Gordon's chops and seems completely unaware that a police detail has been assigned to her. She seems eerily unmoved by the mass slaughter that had just occurred in front of her, too. Yeah. And where were you when they broke in? Scuffing some donuts? You may be cute, but you're a loser. And Jim thinks to himself, this is what the youth of today admires. Still, there's something about her. It could be her almost entirely exposed boobs. I was going to say. Probably something <laughs> like that, yeah. And now we cut over to the mayor's office. Uh, it's, it's, more like she's in, it's, it's more like she's sitting inside of a hard drive uh, talking to weird faces uh, displayed on three monitors. And uh, if you want to know the mayor's name, Madam X. Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> the person running against her was Dr. Evil, so that's why yes. yeah, she was. <laughs> like, what the? Anyway, the mayor asked for a report from the three heads, and they each respond in turn that things are good. There's Media Man. He controls the media. There's Mob Lord. Controls the crime. And Law Man controls the police. And that about handles every facet of society. That's it. Done and dusted. Nothing. What else could there be in a society? There's no other Nothing. thing. That's it. Nothing. Now, further reporting shows that there's been uh, screw-ups all over the place. And that's uh, when these terrible Joker smile things appear on the screen. Uh, or a screen. Uh, yeah. I think everything's a screen now, basically. Yeah. Wherever, wherever they want there to be a screen, it turns into a screen. It's just a screen, yeah. Uh, the Joker says, Why do I do it? I don't understand it. In all my lives, I keep surrounding myself with idiots. Frankly, the job pool for criminals is uh, always pretty terrible. A lot of high school dropouts, man, I gotta admit. Uh, the first time at least the idiots were human, they had an excuse. Maybe I should try apes or something. They might have the brains to do something like a simple file delete. Madam X goes, somebody missed a file delete. Now you figure it out. I let you interfaces run the show while I was busy elsewhere, and you hand information to some stupid human cops. And now you sit here talking about smart, how smart you are. Smart! Well, we don't forget who wrote the servo programs, and don't forget who the real boss is. I'm going to guess it's the digital Joker. Or at least his mouth, it seems. Mm. <laughs> it's been a long time since I had any fun. This time I'll take care of the problem personally. The nosy cop problem. The nosy human cop problem. Oh, thanks for clearing that up. Uh, <laughs> speaking of nosy human cops, Jim Gordon is at his apartment and things are looking down. Can't get into his bank account. He's been suspended from the police force without explanation, and he can't get in touch with Lena. Jim keeps ringing the no man, but all he gets is his robophone, which is a, a very uh, complicated way of saying voicemail. I guess that's what we'll call it in the future. Uh, there's a beep at the door, and uh, that, that wasn't me censoring myself. There was literally a beep there, and uh, Jim hopes that it's Lena dropping by. Despite it being after 11 p.m., which would uh, which would kind of annoy me, I kind of dive under the furniture when I hear the the, the doorbell go. Yeah, you don't you don't like it to ring any time, but I'm telling yeah, you. Yeah, much you, less at night. You show up after 9 p.m., you better there better be a fire going on at the moment. <laughs> yes. I don't want it, but uh, no, it's Bob Chang looking at, to hang out. Jim Gordon says he can't right now. He's about to leave himself. He heads over to the No Man, who is a shirtless dude wearing a helmet and goggles and some kind of computerized cradle, more or less what you'd expect, really. Pretty much. Jim goes, I need your help. I'm on to something big, but 
but my access is screwed up. My own terminal is all backed up. No man replies, I know about that. The whole underground is down. Databases have been getting wiped out for the past 24 hours. All the maids are acting crazy. Big Brother is really ticked off about something. No man pulls himself out of his cradle and... He's sort of gross. He's uh, all scaly and lumpy. Right. Again, more or less what you would expect from this kind of a fella character in these Pretty books. Pretty much. <laughs> Gordon goes, what do you mean, big brother? Uh, don't worry about it. He's cold-level stuff. Ancient history. Now, what exactly are you after? I'm not sure. Typical. If the main character has forgotten the plot, I think uh, the hopes of us carrying on is... We're in big trouble. (laughs) We're screwed, yeah. Uh, Now, Jim tells No Man about the telepresence meetings that Lena had uncovered, and Jim hoped he could get some more information. Telepresence? You're out of your depth. Only human interfaces way up in the net have that kind of power. Too high for a cop. We know of a secret society up there, but we don't interfere with them too close to the source. I can't help you with that. Oh, well, sure, you wouldn't want to get too close to the source. I guess, whatever that means. (laughs) Uh, If you get a copy of those meetings, I might be able to give you something. Offline, of course. I wouldn't want that sort of heat on the underground. Just be careful. Real careful. And with that, Jim leaves no man's probably smelly pad, and heads to the elevator. Jim slips his card into the elevator's reader. He's not being careful. He's not. Uh, The Joker smile appears on the screen, and the elevator begins plummeting to the ground. Jim smashes open the control console, which activates the emergency brakes. He winds up crawling out of the elevator shaft unharmed. Jim figures out that they're tracking him through his card which should be obvious, uh, especially since he has to use it constantly. Even if the uh, elevator, I mean, she. Yeah, people know where you are all the time. Uh, probably Lena, too. Uh, just then, over the ubiquitous television screens that are posted everywhere all the time, there's some breaking news. It seems Officer Lena Schwartz, 24, was killed during a routine arrest. Yet another important plot point that takes place... Off panel. And it's going to get a lot worse than this. Uh, Jim is shocked by Lena's death, so he shoots several nearby television screens, and uh, that's, you know, normal behavior. Let the punishment fit the crime. They got plenty of screens. There's no no lack of screens, so, you know, the loss of five is no big deal. And now he walks the streets truly alone, grinning Joker mouths on a giant screen behind him. Kind of begs the question, are people just really accepting of the fact that the Joker is taking over everything? I mean, like, the screen's just flipped to his grinning mouth all the time. and no All the time. Bat an eyelid. Like, like, that's yeah, it's like, oh, it's him again. Yeah. Oh, well, it's the old Joker. Uh, Jim walks through the rain, beating himself up inside, and finds himself in the same very park from... This morning, right? I mean, this has all been one day, I think. <laughs> yeah, it might have been. <laughs> I, feel like it's, I feel like it's been a year. <laughs> days days are different in the future. I, it seems like that. <laughs> uh, he stumbles over the fallen head from Batman's statue, which no one thought to pick up. Nope. I mean, it's clearly not a, a roped-off crime scene. He walked right in the middle of it, so uh, you'd think they would <laughs> clean up a little bit. Tim looks up at the headless Batman statue, stark against the darkened night sky, a tendril of lightning coursing behind it. Yeah, Jim thinks to himself, that statue again. Damn. If I believe in all that mystical stuff, I'd think this was some sort of an omen. Omen. A sign. What, that you walked in this, by the same place twice in the same day? That's that's a mystical sign? Fine. Yeah, coming and going. You, yeah. might, you might pass the same place. He <laughs> uh, continues to think, Grandpa used to tell stories about a caped crusader, a creature of the night, 
a man who had to find a way to work outside the system. Outside the system, just like me. Well, if you're also the heir to a massive fortune after having seen your parents killed in front of you as a kid, then you're pretty much dead ringers with the same guy. Basically, yes. Now, uh, Gordon inspects the plaque at the base of the statue, and it reads, Batman, for as long as there is justice in the heart of man, he will be with us. That really is awful. I mean, Isn't wow. <laughs> Gordon thinks to himself, Batman, yeah. That was it, as if he forgot. Right. <laughs> the man dressed like a bat was called Batman. Uh, so he says, he thinks to himself, Batman, yeah, that was it. Justice, huh? I need some of that. I can't remember the last time I even heard the word. I think he was saying it to the captain earlier today. I don't know what he's saying. A few times, right? Yeah, it's not, <laughs> I feel like the word has gone out of use or something. Uh, anyway, Jim eventually arrives home to find that his place has been ransacked. It's a wreck, and Gordon surmises they were looking for Lena's disc uh, of those telepresence calls or whatever. Some of Grandpa's Gordon stuff is also strewn about, including a newspaper with the headline, Batman Bus Crack Cartel in the subheader and encourages drug education. <laughs> and the article next to it is called Get High on Life. Must have been like a themed issue or something. And, uh, Came up through the Keebler Corporation. <laughs> right, and uh, all, all anti-drug, all drug awareness. <laughs> Uh, and there's that Batman again. It's starting to feel something like an omen now. Mm, and in one of the of Grandpa's boxes, why, it's Batman's costume. All right, so this is definitely an omen. Got it. Uh, there's also a letter from Bruce Wayne to Commissioner Jim Gordon. The letter reads, Jim, you and your boys are doing a fine job. Keep the costume as proof of trust. A souvenir. I'm getting kind of old for this caped crusader stuff. I sincerely hope it's never needed again. Bruce. Well, I got some bad news for you, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> Over a cloudy purple night sky, the familiar symbol of the Batman is seen above the city of Gotham Mega Megatropolis. That's what they call it. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, some captions really help to set the mood. The night changes. No longer does it look down on a city damned to hell of its own making. One man has taken a fateful step, a step beyond the boundaries of machine logic, a step into the world of legends and heroes. One man alone who has accepted the mantle of a new spirit, the spirit of the Dark Knight, the spirit of Batman. Mm. Batman's first foray is to scare a shoplifter into returning some some candy. So you, you, you start small. Right, right? exactly. you got to build up a little. <laughs> yeah. He'll send a truckload of illegal drugs off a bridge into the Gotham River and handcuffs two drug dealers at, into a grate. And pretty much all of the action happens off panel. I just want to yeah. say it's like a ridiculous. Uh, actually, <laughs> it is very much like those video game cutscenes though back in the day. It's just like a guy sliding into, yep. into place and speaking. Uh, the news picks up on this. Looks like Batman is the scourge of the night again. And boy, do they have some questions. The deficiencies in this artwork really show here. Lots of repeated mm -hmm. assets. Just plain old ugly nonsense. It looks uh, pretty bad. Uh, Might have made a cool cutscene in a Nintendo game. Though I'll give them that. Yep. <laughs> the next page has a cover of Time Magazine, the electronic edition, uh, with a big picture of Batman on the cover. The headline reads, Is he back? Uh, you know, DC Comics is owned by Time, Time Warner at the time, so <laughs> this is not a surprise. They had a little that Prime nod to that, you know. Yes. Uh, elsewhere on television, a Gata concert is preempted by news about Batman. And she don't dig that. Batman, 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 that's all I see. Now he's cutting into my concert coverage. Don't we have a contract or something? And one of her lackeys goes, they can break in with the news anytime. 
we close up on Gata's face, she looks pretty severe. Then we pull yeah. on Adam X's face, and they look awfully familiar, similar, huh? Though, given how many times images are copied and pasted in this comic, <laughs> that really is not a cause for a big alarm, to be honest. No. Uh, Mayor Madam X is also interested to know just where this Batman character thinks he gets off. Media man, mob lord, and lawmen are also at a loss. <laughs> The computer-generated Joker mouth is so mad, he generates a whole Joker head, and... Oh, oh God. Boy. Oh, <laughs> We know that uh, computer capabilities were limited back then, but this is absolutely ludicrous. Yeah, it's like it's like a lollipop with Joker makeup on it. Like, I yes. don't know, it's like a light bulb or something. Uh, <laughs> it's like if the Joker were like a badly made marionette. This doesn't mm-hmm. really make any sense, but... Another one later in the book You'll be stunned by folks But uh, the Joker says Now you sit here feeling sorry for yourselves Like little kids Scared of the boogeyman You want boogies? You want legends? Listen, I was a legend when I was just wetware I'm still a legend This Batman is only a ghost I'm pure code What chance does he have against me? He's just a mortal in a Halloween costume Screwing around in my business just an annoyance, not a threat. This is my city. I'm the king. I'm the biggest brother of all, and I'm watching. And when I see him, I'm going to rain on his parade. He'll get so wet, he'll catch a cold. Only there's no remedy for the sickness, no cure at all for the Joker virus. That's me, folks, and I'm the deadliest virus that ever was. Oh, were you speaking to us? <laughs> well, I'm sorry, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Now, on the outskirts of the city, a heavily fortified Wayne Manor comes to life. The power goes on for the first time in decades, and a robot snaps to readiness. Any guesses on this guy's name? Mm, It's it's Alfred. It's Alfred, Alfred, because of course it is. So, now chapter three. How many chapters are there in this thing? There's not many, Chris. It's just four. You sure about that? Uh... Pretty sure, plus a bunch of back matter. Now, in Media Man's phony space needle, he seems to be listening to his own propaganda while editing television broadcasts for content. Meanwhile, at Gotham's necropolis, Jim Gordon attends Lena's funeral. Wait a minute, Gotham has its own necropolis? Is it it manned by zombie hordes? It's like one of the cemeteries weren't cutting it. They had to uh, set up its own city of the dead. So, paying respects to the dead in the future involves standing in front of a slab with a video screen of the deceased's face on it. That's not weird or creepy at all. (laughs) No. While there, another cop walks over and stands him a floppy disk. Again, it's the classic hard floppy. Yes. Cop goes, I was a good cop once. I cared about things. Sometimes I still do. Lena was special. Make sure somebody pays for killing her. Uh, And if not the actual murderer, then just pin it on some hoodlum. That's fine, too. Make sure they pay big. (laughs) Jim brings the disc over to No Man's, and they give it a look. No Man says that these meetings all took place in the mayor's office, so... This is high-level stuff. Uh-oh. He suggests Jim employ the Cape Crusader guy on this if he knows him, and Jim might be familiar with the fella. Mm-hmm. That night, in the Batman, in, while he's in the Batman garb, he tries to break into the mayor's building. But he's busted immediately by one of those servo enforcers. Jim is able to dodge the servo's bullets and throws out everything in the bat belt in hopes of escaping. Uh, one of the compartments held smoke pellets, which mess up the servo enforcer's targeting doohickey. Uh, Jim decides to jump on the servo robot for some asinine reason. Yeah. He uh, gets inside and hopes to use the manual override, 
but he's shocked into unconsciousness before he can do much of anything. Like, duh, did you, did you really right? think they would have no defenses if you uh, tried to step up to him? <laughs> uh, some mechanical arms pick up his motionless form and take some blood from the chin to learn the true identity of the man under the cowl, though why the arms don't just remove the cowl, we're not sure. It must uh, be the smoke pellets. Are I still affecting, <laughs> it's still affecting its uh, hand targeting. <laughs> Examining Gordon's blood causes the system to crash over and over, and then slowly Gordon wakes up. And here we meet Catwoman. It's Gata in a terrible purple suit and an even worse cat mask. Her fan base moves over the, to the new look pretty quickly, though. The day of the bat is over. The day of the cat, the day of Gata is just beginning. Pay homage to the cat. Listen to the message of the feline force. Listen to the music of the new Catwoman, Gata. Catwoman rules. Down with the bat! The crowd's really into this idea, and they chant, Live for the cat! Live for the cat! Wow. Now, back at Jim Gordon's apartment, where you'd think uh, we wouldn't want to hang around... I mean, he wouldn't uh, have to use his card to get up and into it, right? I mean... Yeah, yeah they're gonna... Unless he's coming in through the window, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> now, he sees they're getting some medical treatment from Bob Chang's sister, who uh, will remain nameless. Uh, they're waiting for Bob to show up with some painkillers. Instead, Bob shows up in a Robin costume holding a skateboard. Yep, you guessed it. I'm Robin, man. You know, the boy wonder. Half of the dynamic duo, Robin. I looked it up in some old magazines. And then put together this replica costume in about half an hour. <laughs> Jim Gordon goes, Robin Hood? Just Robin. What's the matter? You think we don't know you're Batman? You got some kind of copyright on that truth and justice stuff? You need help, man. Look at you. Um, can't argue. Kid's got a point. Uh, <laughs> and over on one of the many ubiquitous television screens, Gata appears. Let the Batman beware. I am the new Catwoman. I will not rest until the Bat, my enemy, is dead. Jim goes, I don't need this. I need to do we, frankly. Mm -hmm. If endangering the lives of random children was good enough for the original Batman, it's good enough for you, Jim Gordon. So, mm -hmm. just to hop to it. At that moment, some servos float in formation looking for Jim Gordon, probably anyone chewing bubblegum. <laughs> the same cop that tipped Jim off at Lana's grave is feeling guilty, so he decides to foam Jim Gordon and warm him, warn him. Too bad the servos intercept this and electrocute him to death immediately. Uh. While Jim and Bob are busy staring at practically the same image of Gata they saw a page ago, uh, servo enforcers gather outside the window to his apartment, and the screen flashes a Batman symbol. A voice tells him to get out of there. Just then, the servos open fire, but Bob and Jim tuck and roll out of the way and run upstairs. Waiting for them on the roof is the Batmobile, the Batcraft. Uh, it's another incongruous uh, polygon assembled number. Uh, this one looks a little like a sleek electric razor. Yeah. It's uh, Yes, it doesn't look much like uh, what, what it's supposed to be. Uh, an electric razor with fins. Kind of cool. Yes. You know? <laughs> now, the Batmobile uh, picks up our heroes and whisks them away to the Batcave. Which is still underneath Wayne Manor, which is not very secretive at this point. I mean, they know that, that Bruce Wayne was Batman, right? That's that's public yeah. knowledge, or at least somewhat. Uh, you'd think it'd be they'd find another place, but all right. <laughs> now, inside this Batcave, Jim and Bob are greeted by the Alfred robot, who offers them smoking jackets. Uh, <laughs> then the two are dressed by a big computer-generated Batman head on the Bat computer screen, and this rendering is very ambitious for the time. It looks awful, but 
but you can tell that it, that it took a while for them to put together. It's a it's an earnest ugly. Yeah. Uh, it still doesn't make it good. It's really it almost looks unbelievable. You have to see it again. Like yes. I can't I can't explain. But uh, that the digital Batman says, "Let me meet the mer- the welcome you to the map game." Jim Gordon, uh, who's obviously not seen tech before, goes, Okay, I admit it. I'm impressed. Yeah, Bob Chang says, The Batcave! And we're standing in it! Wow! I'm glad the mantle has been taking up my no one else like you. Particularly glad that your grandfather's genes bred true. Well, let's not get too romantic about it. <laughs> Gordon goes, My grandfather... Indeed, he was the creator's best friend. Commissioner Gordon knew God? What? Whoa! <laughs> Gordon goes, the creator? Bruce Wayne, the original Batman, you've been wearing his costume. I've been watching you in action and trying to keep you safe. Yeah, okay. You're the one who stopped the servo in the mayor's office? That was easy. I was programmed to handle that sort of problem. Our major task is not that simple, unfortunately. Major task? I'll explain it all of it in a moment. First, let me play some old news clips for you. Man, hanging out at Grandpa's house could be so boring. He always wants to play those old radio things like, oh, God, Grandpa. That will clarify things. I'll prepare you for what is yet to come. Batman shows a news report from the day his statue was unveiled. Seems a little narcissistic, if you ask us. It's like the first thing, you know what I mean? Like, oh, let me just show you. How'd that picture get in there? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Look at me flexing. Uh, Now, at that ceremony, Bruce reveals his alter ego to Commissioner Gordon and tells him that Batman is retiring. After this, Bruce became a Howard Hughes-style recluse, very mysterious with lots of rumors surrounding him. In truth, he spent his twilight years programming this terrible Batman head that is currently talking to us now. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, Joker was acquitted for his hundredth mass murder or something, and so he created the Joker virus, a computer virus that is somehow his distilled personality or something like that. Uh, point yeah. is, the computer-run world has been Jokerized ever since. And this is what they're up against, the Joker virus, which computer Batman can't fight alone because it has human components. A likely story. Uh, But first, some gifts for Jim and Bob. They both get new costumes made out of bulletproof Kevlar. Robin's is gray. And his arms and legs are still exposed. <laughs> what is so. the point of that? But at least he gets some knee pads and elbow pads, so that's still Those safer than what cool, the yeah. original Batman gave him. <laughs> Robin also gets a sweet hoverboard with two fans in it. And uh, Jim Gordon's uh, new suit is full of all kinds of technological thingies and whatchamacallits. You can just use your imagination, you know? You want the, yeah. you want the infrared scanner? You got it. You yeah, there. Yep. Smoke pellets, lasers, everything. It's all on there. <laughs> now, the Batman suit uh, also has the new Batman symbol on his chest, ringed in green, and it is the worst Batman symbol ever devised. Uh, Gordon's eyes also glow green, which is how they were colored whenever he wore the Batman costume before. Yeah, which I did, we didn't bring up, but uh, I, why? Did his eyes yeah. turn green? But okay. <laughs> uh, and, uh, we don't mean the eye, the pupils turn green, the whole eye. The, the whole, uh, yeah. The eyeball turns green, but anyway, uh, caption reads, thus a new alliance is formed. Digital intelligence team with the cream of humanity. Batman and Robin again roam the streets of Gotham, dealing out instant justice to those who have long felt themselves beyond the law. 
a new mythos forms around them, a mythos of human law and order, of the return of something long missing. And we got to note that all of this happens off panel. Once again, uh, yeah. <laughs> this is like Vader being eliminated from a battle royal. <laughs> uh, now, all we see is a really bad splash, half-page splash of Gordon and Chang busting onto the scene. Yeah, kind of like, I can't explain it, but like, it is like swooping in. <laughs> like as if they're going, yeah. Yeah, hooray, now, yeah, Toyota. <laughs> <laughs> now the awful uh, Joker face is boastful, but his face morphs and is stripped down to its wire rendering to become the computer Batman face. Uh-uh. There's a full page spread of just his face that really drives home how bad it it's is. It's almost comical. It's so crazy. <laughs> now Batman addresses Mayor Madam X and her Council of Screens. Mark me well. I am the end of all things for you. The face of your judge and jury. The last face you will ever see in this world. The face of justice. True justice. Digital justice. Not quite the you've eaten Gotham's wealth speech from uh, year one, but uh, I guess it'll have to do. It'll have to do for now. Uh, Now, chapter four. And this is it, right? No more chapters after this one? Right, no more chapters. Thank goodness. So Gordon and Chang head out to take down Gotham's corrupt infrastructure. First, the lawman. Gordon does something to him off-panel, and he's done. Then, Mob Lord. Robin slams his hoverboard into some minions as all reaching Mob Lord, who's actually a dude in a kabuki mask, which was a weird touch, but that was cool. Uh, his screen goes dark as well. And that leaves us with Media Man. Computer Batman will take him out personally, uh, if a digital construct can have any you know, personal feelings. Caption reads, Since the days of ancient Rome, dictators have known that it is vital to give the people food and entertainment, bread and circuses. It keeps the masses happy and busy, too involved to think about the real world and things that are really important. In Gotham, the media man has long supplied the spectacles, the divergence that kept the people content. Now, though, he finds himself a mere spectator as the final confrontation between the warped virus that runs the city and the pure code of the Batcomp begin their final clash, a confrontation that will determine the fate of the city and ultimately the entire world, a confrontation that is, incidentally, being broadcast live to all the peoples of the world. And this page is so bad. Uh, it's Media Man in his cradle looking scared to pieces while the miniature screens behind him have alternate computer-generated Batman and Joker faces on them, panning out over four panels. It's so bad. It's like, what really? are we even seeing here? Yeah. Uh, how could these next panels be described? It's a battle taking place in the digital realm, okay? Yeah. Uh, after some trash talking by the Joker, they create digital versions of their vehicles of preference. Joker makes some servos. Batman makes the Batcraft. It looks like a doorstop. <laughs> then there's several panels of actual computer code overlapping and increasing intensity until it is unreadable. Not that any of it would make sense anyway. The computer code is just an object in the story. It doesn't actually mean or lead to anything. Yeah. Media Man flips out. Then the Media Man's tower sort of warps out of existence like the house at the end of Poltergeist. And uh, we think this is happening in the real world? I'm not, I really am not sure. Uh, whatever the case, Media Man's screen at the mayor office blinks out. 
Now we see digital Batman and Joker racing in the computer world, which is basically uh, what the light bikes uh, did in the movie Tron. Simultaneously, Jim Gordon approaches what we uh, guess is City Hall, <laughs> ready to deal with Madame X personally. But before he can reach the front door, the new Catwoman, Gata, stands in his way. She whips him with her electro whip, and the mob around the building starts to beat up on Bob Chang. Then Gordon walks over and kisses Gata. <sighs> How lame can you get? Uh, Digital Joker sends a bunch of servos over to cover Gordon and Gata, leaving him unable to fight lest a bystander's hurt. Like, you weren't worrying about that before, but also, like, no, yeah. he and Gata have, like, this pretty wide berth around them, and the servos have their guns trained towards them. Seems like this is, like, pretty textbook safe enough for Batman to do something. Yeah, probably. <laughs> then the mayor herself exit her domain and into the crowd below. She has Gordon, Chang, and Gata brought inside by armed thugs. The next couple of pages, I had to explain this, the Joker just says a bunch of absolute nonsense, while different filters and effects are applied to some fairly mundane computer art. It's unclear if this is happening in the computer world or the real world, and I don't think I care about the difference at this point. Uh, at the end of Joker's soliloquy, Batman is having none of it. No, uh, for a while, it seems like Digital Batman is gaining the upper hand. He's able to wipe all the servos of their murderous intentions. But Jim Gordon is scanned and uploaded to the computer, where he becomes the Joker's hostage. Uh, this this whole thing is pretty much Tron. Yeah, I'd say you gotta watch Tron to uh, get into this at all. Yeah. Uh, Joker says, Cuta, my digital hostage, in my world, that's creative. You mess with my code anymore, Batty, and your buddy gets deleted. Now I've got time to rummage around in your core memory. Ah, what have we here? It's a 32-bit rendition of the night Bruce Wayne saw his parents shot and killed. And it looks like crap. That nasty little trauma that happened while you were a wet a six-year-old. The memory that made you what you are. While you were a living body, I couldn't get at it, but now I can not only get at it, I can erase it. And when, when what makes you what you are ain't anymore, you're not what you are. In fact, you just plain aren't. Just, uh, just to get, just get to the part where you're trying to tell me the time, tell me the timeshare, and uh, let's get this over with. Yeah, this, this spiel is going on way too long. Uh, oh, lordy, lordy! Beginning to get the picture. You know what happens to a program without memory, don't you? It ceases to exist. Well, actually, it just stops running, but uh, I guess the effect is the Pretty same. The same. Uh, Digital Batman is derez down to the wireframe. Uh, and I having had said that. Yeah, that's not pleasant to have to say that. Yeah. Uh, but even as the Joker, uh, but even as the Joker celebrates deep in the Batcave, an obsolete surf bot carries out the Batcave's last order. It trundles an antique floppy disk to an ancient disk drive connected to the Batcomp's mainframe, the disk that contains the Batman's original program. Oh, okay, so now we come to the moral of this story. Remember to back up your files. I could think of plenty of times I wished I had, I'll tell you what. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, infused with the pure Batman code, or, or whatever, uh, the system is rebooted, and everything goes all swirly until the Joker and the Batman, fighting an unwinnable war, cancel each other out. We think. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. But now that the Joker virus is dead, Madame X is also dying. 
Why? What possible reason could there be for this? I don't know. It's so weird. It's like, why? What happened? But uh, she <laughs> does look to be like an android, all leaking green fluid with an exposed red Terminator eye. She goes, "He's gone. The Joker's gone. I'm free at last. Free of everything except my guilt." Gotta. I'm here. I have to tell you, you're me, a clone. Many years ago, planned to transfer my brain into your body before I became cyborg. Your Victor Stone, aka Cyborg, the Teen Titans sure get weird in the late 21st century, I'll tell you what. Yeah, Wolf, Wolfman lost the plot. <laughs> <Really>? uh, <laughs> Madam X continues Couldn't, couldn't do it. You were too alive. Too independent, too much like a daughter. See, Gata was bred to be annoying and horrible. It's not her fault. Yeah, don't feel bad for hating her now. Do you want my secret benefactor? All these years, I never knew. More to the point, she never cared. And then Madam X expires. Jim Gordon goes, she's gone, but I'm not. Somehow the digitizing process was reversed when, when it happened. Whatever it was. Again, if you don't know what's going on, then there really is no hope for us to figure it out. No. Gordon goes, it's all over. But is it? And Bob Chang says, yeah, who won? Good or evil? Technology? Humanity? Also the machines. I, I mean, I think it's pretty clear the good guys want to beat the machines, isn't it? Like, because the good guys are there. They're, yeah. they're the ones standing. The machines, the machines are machines not. are dead, so there you go. <laughs> Gordon goes, mankind won. Sure, whatever. Yeah, so the fans are the winners, yeah. <laughs> exactly, we are all winners. Uh, Bob says, does that mean we have to take the costumes off? Go back to being? Gata says, no. We still have a lot to do. We have gotten too dependent on technology. It would be too easy to allow the balance to shift back. She's already had a career making music for suicidal sociopaths, so uh, this ain't too much of a change. It's a bit more of a lateral move, I think, for her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, final power panel, the final panel is a terrible picture of Jim Gordon as Batman that we've actually <laughs> seen throughout through the whole end of this book. Uh, Transparent laid over a wide shot of the Gotham Megatropolis. And he says, she's right. It's the balance that's important. Matter and soul, man and machine, they're interdependent. They can't exist alone. Mankind lived for several thousand years with any machines, though, so I don't... Uh, that's true, that's true. <laughs> Humanity needs technology, but it also needs something else. Something to believe in, to trust. Something like the spirit of the Batman. Uh, in the meantime, this dork in a wrestling helmet will have to do. He will have to do. And now, the back matter. You, you said there were no more chapters. No, this isn't a chapter. It's just some vehicle and character designs and specs. You said no more chapters. It'll be quick, Chris. Don't worry about it. Okay, okay. So first, it's the Batcraft in all its glory. It's actually the stealth VTOL multipurpose all-weather craft. And on here, against a white background, you can really see how it looks like an electric <laughs> razor. Uh, it's loaded with a bunch of features. None of them are interesting. Mm-hmm. We hop over to the Batsuit. Advanced Technology Body Protection System. System, ATBPS. You, you really think they're trying to make an acronym, acronym here, right? They give it a shot, at least. I mean, <laughs> one nice feature is that it's got a neurally controlled computer helmet with a whopping two gigabytes of memory. Nice. What are you going to do with all that space? Oh, goodness. Uh, 
<laughs> Somewhere in his chest is a Dew Chemical laser mount. We uh, we assume this has, is an allusion to Dow Chemical and probably not Mountain Dew. No. Uh, why not just make it, uh, say, Wayne Industries? You know? I don't... Is, are they still around? I mean... I don't understand. Or, like, is something uh, an allusion to DC? Like, why, why take an actual yeah. company and change it? But... Uh... Whatever. I don't think there was a lot of what they call the old editorial oversight on a lot of this mm, book. But mm. and now the Servo Cop. It's an MPE Ted Metro Police Enforcement Model Ten, and it really looks like a propeller beanie cap here in this version. It does also kind of looks like a high tech hair dryer, right? Like one of those sit under <laughs> models. I think uh, these servers are these servos are equipped with TADS Target Acquisition Designation Sight. So. A camera? That's what they mean, right? Just a no, camera. No, a TADS. A oh, TADS. okay, right. <laughs> then all of the main characters get their own cards, sort of. And on the next page is a glossary of terms. And we're not going into all this. No. Uh, but it does say this about the robophone. Early advances in speech recognition technology led to the development of the smartphone. The idea was to emulate a good personal secretary, which is eerily prescient for such an anachronistic book. That's right, and every other aspect is not has not happened at all. That's the one thing that might be considered prescient about this comic. So. Yeah, uh, we read this comic. We did read this comic. Uh, it is, it is, it's interesting. The interesting part of it is the computer generation of the artwork, yeah, obviously. Sure. The story is poor, uh, even by poor Batman story standards, even by uh, dystopian sci fi story standards. Yeah. Uh, but what do you, what do you have to say, Chris? Uh, you know, I, I, when we were talking earlier, it was like, it, it's, it's more dull than anything. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's just so boring. It's, it's really just a, uh, a product of, of, of the gimmick. Um, yeah. this whole thing is the gimmick. And, uh, if not for the gimmick, I don't, I mean, people don't talk about this today anyway, but, uh, I couldn't imagine it even being a footnote if not for the gimmick. No, that definitely not. And there, there is something to the fact that this was done on computer, and as we'll get into mm-hmm. it later, this, this is the beginnings of what was going to become an industry-changing uh, sure. thing. You know, so you, I look at it in the, in context. That's how you have to look at it. Otherwise, you're going to say, "What happened to these poor people that had to?" You know, <laughs> uh, and like and like I said, thinking back to the SNES, it looks like that. And if we if we had seen these graphics on a, a Nintendo or Sega game, it might have been like not bad. You know, sure. Uh, not the polygon stuff, but the the other stuff. I mean, the polygon yeah. stuff is bad, no matter how you slice it. But <laughs> again, they're getting there. So take it like that. But it is it's the story is just dull. The stakes are not really there. The characters are not developed. You know, Bob Chang's supposed to be like Jim Gordon's kid buddy. We never see yeah. them actually like be friends, hang out, hang out yeah. ever. Uh, and God, I, it, I don't know why. I mean, just because it was done on a computer, why did it need to take place in a digital landscape? Oh well, you know, it could have been a uh, could have been a present day Batman story well, just done on a computer. It's true. Uh, I can't remember if Shatter was the future or not, but it was like basically a noir detective story, right? It was. Yeah. It wasn't really yeah. like all about him de-resing and using credits he, and whatever. He else. wasn't in Tron. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I do recommend you re- watch that original Tron, folks. It's a good movie and uh, definitely give you a little background of where some of the ideas, aka almost all the ideas, came for this <laughs> digital justice. But like we say, the key to this book is the 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 way it was made the and technology. the way it was manufactured. So we thought we would talk about pretty much for the first time a little overview of. 
how comics get made. And uh, try to be brief, but this is going to be important. Following this, we're going to be hearing from Bob Rizakis, so some of these terms will be uh, used when we talk to him. So uh, make sure you perk your ears up here if you've kind of dozed off to this point. <laughs> All printing, since its earliest beginnings in ancient Greece and China, and through to the invention of the printing press in about, at about 1440, up until the present day works on the same principle. at smearing an engraved or etched reverse image with ink, when the, the image would be on anything from stone to metal, and then pressing it against paper to leave a desired mark, right? Yeah. You do this with your stamps. Rubber stamps kind of work on the same principle. Uh, we could do a history of printing, which might span several podcast episodes, so let's concentrate on how comic books are printed, and that'll be important when, we, when we're talking to Bob Rizakis. Uh, comics are printed in what is known as a four-color process, also known as the CMYK process, for the four inks that are used. That's cyan, magenta, yellow, and key. That's almost always black. Uh, I would say 95% of the time. The reason for black ink being referred to as key is because in four-color printing, uh, cyan, magenta, and yellow printing plates are key. They're lined with the black plate, so that's how they get them all into register. Uh, so that's why it's the key plate. Mm -hmm. Now, in the days of pulp paper comics, uh, these were run so quickly and so cheaply that aligning the plates was not a priority. Hence why some of your favorite old comics are wildly out of register. Wild. A lot of coloring outside the lines there. Big time, yeah. <laughs> now, the CMYK model is, the, is a uh, subtractive color model because the CMYK model works by partially or entirely masking colors on a lighter, usually white, background. The ink reduces the light that would otherwise be reflected and in various combinations can trick the human eye into seeing the entire color spectrum. Mm. Such a model is called subtractive because it because inks subtract brightness from the white. Yeah, it's interesting because CMYK is basically an optical illusion mm -hmm. that, that we use to to fabricate, you know, a full color printing, but uh, it's been going on for a much longer time, and that the whole effect can actually even probably take its own half an episode if we wanted to really sure. dig into that. Uh, originally, comics were colored by cutting out films of various densities and the appropriate shapes to be used in producing color-separated printing plates. So, needed a red shirt, you cut out a shirt-shaped piece of film, slap it down, there it is. The colorist would add dyes to the finished ink artwork as a reference for the printing press master, as well as label the CMYK codes necessary in the margin. And the press master would then cut the shape, the correct film, lay it out to create the page like a puzzle. And from this, they could engrave the four plates needed for CMYK process. Sounds It sounds laborious, and it was. Mm. Uh, throughout the 20th century, nearly all comic books printing was done on aluminum plates. Each plate had to be shot four times in four configurations to capture the cyan, magenta, yellow, and black colors. These plates were then hand-engraved after that for better reproduction. So what I'm saying is you, they would lay the film over a... Uh, plate, a piece of metal, a round piece of metal, and when they shot it with, with the film, when they, when they shot it with a camera, that actually left an imprint on the plate, that kind of like shot a light through it, left an imprint on the plate that could then be engraved, that was a guide for the engraver, does this make any sense? Uh, mm -hmm. It was a lot of work. Uh, I was going to say it sounds like a lot of work. It, I mean, it's, it was, until very recently, it was incredibly laborious, a lot of people needed to get involved in, these, in this process. Uh, it was sped up by the mid-20th century when especially treated plates were created that would 
partially self-etch themselves, uh, the negative image, once shot, once these were, like, uh, exposed. Actually, I'm, I keep saying shot exposed is really the right word. It's a mm. big light being shined on it, too. Uh, the parts that were not, the parts that were clear would pick up some sort of a... Uh, thing to etch. Sure. <laughs> a method was also developed where different filters could be laid over finished colored artwork to separate the cyan, magenta, yellow, and black plates. And these are called color separations. So you got the colored artwork, I put this yellow filter on it, all that I can see are the yellow parts of it. You understand? You mm-hmm. know, uh, the filter wouldn't be yellow necessarily. It was all very all very scientific. Uh, I don't really know the exact science behind it, but <laughs> these were where we got color separations and fairly well did away with the practice of hand-cutting film and arranging it in the appropriate colored areas. Now they could generate a full piece of film at a time at the right uh, separation. Sure. Now this is how comic books and four-color work were printed up until about 30 years ago when Dex- desktop publishing came into play. Uh, first began digital coloring, upon which Bob will elaborate about the early days. Uh, but from these digital files, four color separations could be instantly made, then shot for film, and then made into plates. By the mid-1990s, they developed machines that could rip separations directly into film. And by the early 2000s, a direct-to-plate technology was developed, truly direct-to-plate, where the separations are computer-engraved directly onto plates, so no physical film was created. Right. So, like, that didn't exist when Digital Justice came out? No. It almost certainly had to be they printed out the pages and they had to place those filters to make color separations and then make the plates from that. It was still a lot of process, but they had cut out kind of like a, a, a step or two by doing it. The front it. end, yeah. yeah. Now, in fact, these uh, plates are now made of zinc, and they're thrown away after a single printing, yeah. as opposed to the aluminum and brass plates that were held for several hundred thousand impressions. I mean, that used to be, you know, you go to a printing press, it used to be uh, 80% storage of, sure. of plates and film. You know, I'm Now, sure, yeah. all that is nothing. It's unbelievable how much has changed. That's wild. And that's how color comics are made today. They're either drawn digitally and ripped right to the plates, or drawn traditionally with a pen and paper, scanned, colored on a computer, and then ripped from there. We can't uh, imagine that any comic books are colored no. traditionally anymore. Probably Even, even yeah. highfalutin ones, you know, I can't... Sure. I don't think they would even bother, though, anymore, because you could get such a much better effect a better from result digital. And yeah. Sure, and, and the speed. And the, I mean, oh, definitely, just, yeah. yeah. The cost, everything is just better, so... <laughs> and now, uh, after, after having set the table... We're going to take it right to the answer man himself, Bob Rizakis. <laughs> it's not really an impressive story. No, it's it's really no. more of a uh, a feat of a technology at the time. Yeah. I mean, that's really what it had going for it was the uh, the fact that it was all completely done on the computer. Yeah. But um, you know, it was not a matter of of uh, wow, this is this is uh, you know, an earth-shattering story like Dark Knight or uh, um, you know, one of one of the uh, Batman Year One or Killing Joke or anything like that. No, sure. this is okay. It's a computer-generated Batman story. Well, whoever wrote the jacket copy certainly thought it was going to be the start of something big, but I guess maybe it was a little kind of ahead of its time, considering what happened after yeah. that. Uh, well, considering how much artwork now is actually done on the computer, I know I mean, this is not something that was was unforeseen. Um, you know, when we we first started coloring the comics on the uh, on the computer, at the time I said somewhere down the road the artists are actually going to just be painting the artwork on the computer screen. Yeah. 
And so this was, you know, the first published example of, you know, what was to come. Did anyone tell you, was anybody saying, pish tosh, there's no way? Oh, I, mean, I had that. I had that through most of the '80s when I said we're going to, you know, go from the hand color separations to being able to do it on a computer screen, and they were like, "Yeah, yeah, sure, Bob." Yeah, you know, <laughs> nothing will ever replace the the little old ladies in in um, Greenwich, Connecticut, who were doing hand separations. What I know about the comic is essentially from its uh, Mike Gold's introduction and jacket copy, uh, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of it, and it says that this <laughs> this is the first direct to plate comic is that is that your memory of it also or uh yeah well it would certainly would be because it was um you know the, the first one where the the uh, printer the printing film was created mm. you know for the um from the from the electronic files yeah ripped it right mm-hmm. off the file and made its own separations yeah. i would assume right yeah but i mean it, it's in turn, it, it, it's a, a tough um, line to draw because really, once we started doing the color sep- the coloring and color separations on the computer, they were in effect direct to plate. Right. Yeah. I mean, they were still we were still generating film because the printing plant did not have the technology. Yeah. To to go right to the, the zinc plates. Sure. Goes, yeah. They still had but, to I shoot mean, the we film. Had, they, yeah, they still needed film to make the plates, whereas when they were they put in the new presses that were able to go direct to plate, we were already there. Wow. In terms of okay, here's the electronic files. You know, you can you can go direct to plate. We there is not going to be a film negative in between. Yeah, and of course that's how uh, 99.9% of four color work is done today. I don't think I can't think of the last time I saw a color separation uh, myself. To be honest with you, that wasn't. Oh, just I don't like think sort of a, Yeah, maybe in gravure yeah. printing or something, or like some high-end magazines might use something like that. But I don't even think they are. Probably not anymore. Well, uh, let's re- let's really bring it back to uh, your first comics memory. Introduce yourselves to the people out there that might not know the answer, man. Okay. Um, how far back do you want me to go? All the way back? All the go. way. Let's take it all the way. <laughs> all back. the way. Okay. Well, I started Lost, out as a fanboy. Dirty. <laughs> no, no, there's nothing dirty. Um, started reading uh, comic books probably when I was about five or six years old. Mm. Um, and the first ones I read were things like Felix the Cat and Casper the Friendly Ghost. Mm. Um, the first Superman comic that I got uh, was um, um, a, the uh, Black Knight Super Sword. I think it was issue 123 of Superman, 124, something like that. Mm. Um, and that is the, the oldest one that I have actually purchased that is in my collection. You still you hung on to it all this time? Oh yeah, I've, wow. I've hung on to virtually all of them. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> from, I, have, I have a lot of aging paper in my house. For, to do it from and, age five is very impressive. You know, usually people kick it around 10, 11, but that's very good. Yeah, well, actually, I mean, the, the Superman is the oldest one that, that um, remains. I don't, I don't have any more of the Felix the Cats or the right. Caspers or any of those or hot stuff, you know. I mean, those were the earliest ones I was reading, but I, I did not save them. Yeah. And uh, started uh, my career as a uh, letter hack 
somewhere around 1968-69. I had a couple of three letters printed before that, but started going into a fairly serious letter writing um, probably around the time I was a senior in high school or beginning college. And uh, over the next four years, wrote letters on virtually every one of the comics and had uh, 130, 140 letters printed. Wow. So I was uh, I was right up there with uh, people uh, like Guy Lilly and uh, Marty Pasco and uh, a few others who were there all the time. Yeah. And, uh, did you Did you get contacted by any of them from through the comics? I know your address must have been out there too. Uh, most of the time it didn't have a street address, so uh, oh, okay. there wasn't much contact back and forth. Uh, I remember in, in 1972, I was at um, the Phil Suling convention in the city, uh-huh. and I was standing in line waiting to get Jack Kirby to sign some stuff, and Mike Barr was right behind me. <laughs> and I, look, I, I saw his name tag, and I said, Mike Barr, I read your letters. He said, looked at mine and said, Bob Rizakis, I read your letters. <laughs> <laughs> wow, and then later so, on, you'd, uh, you'd be working at the same company like, not too long yep. after that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's yeah. pretty great. A lot of guys from uh, that, you know, the first convention era seem to have gotten in through the letter columns. Uh, yeah. And that, that's that's awesome. I know you worked, you went right into the production staff, right, right away when you went to D.C.? Uh, well, I started out actually in the editorial department for oh. three years. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> so I went in, uh, actually had gone in initially uh, to visit Julie Schwartz. Um, I had decided when I was a senior in high school, it was like, gee, you know, I, I really would like to go visit the D.C. offices. And uh, so I was like, well, let me call up and see if I can get, you know, invited to come in. <laughs> and Julie had been running lots of my letters, so I figured, okay, he'd know my name. Yeah, we must be friends I, now, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I, call, I called the, the office and, you know, got the receptionist, and I asked for Julie and got connected to him, you know. And, I mean, wow. I guess I was thinking it's like calling the White House and sure. saying it's like <laughs> the president. And it's like, no, no, you know, you talk to 22 levels of secretaries. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, he came on the phone, and I, you know, said, and he said, oh, yeah, sure. Well, you know, when do you want to come in? And I was like, uh, you know, well, how about Friday? And he was like, sure, come in in the afternoon. And uh, so I went into the city, and... Um, at the time, I had been uh, making up some uh, comic book-related crossword puzzles and word finds and stuff for a couple of fanzines, mm. and I figured Nelson Bridwell would probably like them because they were full of trivia, mm. and so I brought them with me, and as it turned out, Nelson shared the office with Julie. Huh. And, well, he well, must have been very important, you know, two editors. <laughs> I know how yeah, it is. Well, at that point, there was not, everybody was sharing off Right, right. So, uh, you know, I mean, Julie had for years shared the office with Bob Kaniger, so. Wow. But, uh, so Julie and I were talking, and at one point, I think Nelson had been out of the office, he came back in, and, and I said hello to him, and I gave him the puzzles, and Julie looks at him, he says, what are those? And I explained it to him, and he grabs them, and he says, wait right here. And it's like, well, I'm not going to go anywhere. <laughs> I'm in DC's offices. Why would I leave? Yeah. And so he came back about five minutes later with Saul Harrison, who was then the vice president. And Saul looked at them and he said, did you make these up? And I said, yeah. He says, could you make up ones just about Superman and just about Batman? And I said, sure. He said, okay, if you do, we'll buy them. All right. I was like, okay. And... Uh, 
so they decided they decided he also wanted some Justice League ones because they were just starting the um, the hundred page super spectaculars at the time, uh, and he thought they would make interesting fillers in in you know the big books, and so that was a Friday. I think I came back you know the following Monday or Tuesday with nine puzzles. Nice. And there were three Superman and three Batman and three Justice League ones. Was it, was it all off the top of your head? Did you have to go into the uh, collection to do some research? Oh, I pretty much knew what yeah. I was putting in there. I right. mean, it was relatively standard stuff. It wasn't like I was, you know, citing something that happened in one issue in 1956. Right, right, right. General stuff. What happened in the third panel? It had to be fair to panel. the kids who were going to do it. Sure, yeah. 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 Uh, what does yeah, Superman I, I, do with the kryptonite meteor in, in number 43, exactly. page 7? Um, so from that, then uh, I graduated college and, and uh, said, gee, let me see if I can get a job at D.C. rather than become an accountant. Uh-huh. And uh, went in there, saw, and, and so I became a um, an editorial assistant first. And uh, the first thing they had me doing was answering all the fan mail. And uh, gave me a big, big box full of mail that included letters from me. (laughs) He said, "You don't have to answer those." (laughs) But they had this generic postcard that you could, uh, you know, it was just like "Thanks for writing," and it had pictures of the various characters on it. You could Uh, mail them out. Well, Saul's idea at the time, and there were virtually no comic book shops at the time. Kids bought their comics at uh, 7-Elevens and mom and pop candy stores and places like the 5 and 10. Um, you, there was no place that you could get comics. And in a lot of areas, you know, there weren't even stores nearby. And so Saul's idea was to kind of be like the uh, the good humor man or Mr. Softy and drive up and down the street with a van full of comics uh-huh. and, um, you know, sell and find the customers. So um, he made the pro- got the prototype. He... he uh, Basically rented a uh, a, a van uh-huh. and had uh, had the DC comic mobile painted on it and then decorated it with a whole load of superhero decals. All right. And uh, so Michael had it first. He lived in uh, South Jersey and um, drove it to the beaches, the parks, the outside the summer schools, and uh, did relatively well. I mean, at the time, comic books cost twenty cents a piece, and so did gas. Some uh, some regular customers and and uh, 
you know, in certain blocks. But the difference between what Michael was able to do with going to the parks, you, know, you could go to the park and park in the parking lot or go to the beach and park in the parking lot and just right. set up shop while people were coming by. I was prohibited from going anywhere near the parks, the schools, the beaches, or pretty much anywhere else where people, you know. Right, where people congregate. <laughs> that's, that's very useful for you, sure. Yeah, uh, so I was like, oh, thank you very much. And uh, so I was limited basically to driving up and down streets ringing the bells. You know, as I said, I developed some regular customers. I had one, one kid who uh, would ask me for a specific issue, and I'd go back to the office once a week to reload and pick up the new stuff. And it'd be like they had a whole closet in the in the um, office that was the extras of everything. And so I'd go digging through there, and I think I, I filled out his commandy collection oh, wow. at the time <laughs> by finding the issues he had missed. Just like the loose issues here and there. Well, yeah, with the extra copies, because right. they'd get a whole bundle of them in, and you know they'd make up sets for everybody, and then there'd be extras, and so they would all go in the, into the, this closet. And uh, there was one day I was in there, and I was loading up a box, and I was taking, you know, well, what else looks interesting? And Joe Orlando came by, and he saw me in there, and he didn't know who I was. And so he goes running down the hall, and he says, Saul, there's some kid, he's, he's stealing comics out of the, out of the closet. <laughs> Saul comes running down, and Saul just stops, he looks at me, and, and then he looks at Joe, he says, that's just Rizakis. <laughs> <laughs> so for years later, when I was working with Joe, I, I would say, you know, you tried to have me arrested once. Yeah, basically, or, or at least maybe fired, or something would have happened there. Yeah. Uh, well, he didn't know I worked there. He thought true, I was yeah. just some kid who had, you know, gotten in, somehow gotten into the office. And uh, you know, uh, was was stealing comics. Well, I mean, I'll be honest. If it sounds if it sounds like a closet full of overflow, I think you would have been doing him a favor anyway. I mean, she should. Have, oh yeah, <laughs> let the kid take these comics, please. Take my comics, please, as they say. Uh, uh, well, we did find a way to clean that closet quite a bit when we had the Superman movie contest. Oh yeah. And uh, one of the prizes, the runner-up prizes, was a. Um, a surprise bundle of DC comics. Hey, you got a surprise. Hey it was you know, the you top got like 50 20 comics. comics yeah. and, <laughs> and it was just like, okay, we're making up more. And I think we gave out like 1,500 sets of these things because they, without thinking, they had decided the runner up um, prize would be subscriptions. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And it was when they they saw they had fifteen hundred runner ups, the runners up. It was Saul was like, "What are we going to do now? This is an awful lot of you know money that we're going to be spending." And I said, "Hey Saul, how about if we we make up these prize bundles instead and offer them that?" Yeah. And mm-hmm. he I, he says, "Well, what are you going to use?" I said, "Well, we'll put in some of these." They had the uh, the light the the foreign uh, department had all of the you know the different. Um, international versions of the books. I said, we'll put in some foreign stuff. Hey, look at that. I said, yeah. we'll guarantee that every one of them has an autographed issue. And and he was like, this is a great idea. And so that's what we did. We gave away about 1,500 uh sets of these books, but it was just like, okay, everybody got, you know, because there were, you know, 200 copies of Commandy number 17 in there, so every <laughs> bundle had Commandy number 17 one, yeah. in it. Con- and, Consequently, uh, that's the lowest valued comic on resale now. It's the mo- <laughs> most common one yeah. to give it away by DC. <laughs> you know, any of the freelancers came in and said, hey, you know, could you, could you autograph like 25 of these while you're here? Oh, yeah. I remember getting Bob Haney one time to, to sign a whole load of World's Finest and brave and bold. Oh man! And, uh, oh, that'd be great. 
you know, so I got him to do like 25 of them, and then he came in the following week, and I said, Bob, can you do some more? And, and after like the third or fourth week, he was avoiding me. Yeah, he was like, no more. <laughs> like, like, don't let Rizaka see me. <laughs> <laughs> you had to move on to uh, Bridwell or somebody. Uh, oh, it was, I, I got Julie Schwartz to sign a lot yeah. of them. I got, you know, the, the editors to sign. There were one, if, if I had written the letter column, I signed them. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. So it was like, uh, you contributed. You know, whatever. <laughs> you know, we just said we didn't say who was going to autograph them. We just said they would all be autographed. You know, it's funny. These, are, this is sort of stories from a, such a. You know, you don't think about it, but it's a different time of comics publishing when the production cost, the unit cost, was so low that they were just ubiquitous. I mean, between returns and overflow and, you know, what you had lying around. I bet that's yeah. not... I mean, I, I bet you walk into D.C. offices now, you probably still could walk out with, you know, a crate full of comics, but uh, they pretty much print to order now, you know? It's, it's all based on uh, retail. There's only one, you know, there's no newsstand, so it's it's interesting that, like, I don't think they could do that same thing anymore, you know. They'd be giving. Oh, away. not a, not not easily. I yeah, mean, it would cost probably cost them more money than if they just gave. And now, of course, now they just give them digital subscriptions. Right. That would, that would be that would be the cheap way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be like, yeah, here you go. Here's the your your secret code word. You can read everything for the next month. Yeah, and that's <laughs> it. And so we go. Let's uh, kick into that story. How did how did uh, you bring co computer coloring to the world of comics? Well, it started, I, I was the production director at the time, so I was dealing with, you know, getting all the color separations done on all the books. And, um, a friend of mine who was a computer geek got a uh, new computer. Well, he was. That's fine. Exactly. It's not like you just chose, you chose that very carefully, but the, you brought it right on the money. <laughs> um was always, you know, on the cutting edge of whatever new technology came out, he was getting it. And so he got one of the, uh, he got a computer and it had one of the first of the, the paint box type mm. programs on it. And so he calls up one, one evening and he says, you got to come over and see what this computer can do. And they're like, okay. And, uh, you know, we, we socialized all the time. And so his wife and my wife got along really well. And, mm. you know, so we went over, and the, and the girls were having the cup of tea and coffee. And he's showing me, look, I can, I can you know, color this, you know, draw this on the screen in color, and then I can print it. And this is back when, you know, the color printer, you had the little, like, crayon thing. <laughs> yep. When it, you had the yellow and the red and the blue and the black, and you dropped them in. Yeah. And, and it came out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so... You know, he so he he then you know, I said, well, that's really nice on the on the print on the computer. I said, but you know, what happens if you want to print it? And then he says, oh, well, just watch. And so it comes out, and I'm looking at it, and it's like, and I mean, this is, you know, the early days. The dots were not that fine. You're talking, you know, chunky right. dots like you had in the old comic yeah. books. And I was like. Well, wait a minute now. I said, so the computer, you're putting this on the screen, and the computer is sending the image to the printer, and it's determining, it's doing color separations, obviously. Right. This program is, is you know, separating it into the, the, the four components. Uh, I said, there's got to be a way that we could use this to color the comic books. Hmm. And so I went back to the office, and, and in one of the weekly um, 
um, department or uh, department head meetings, I brought it up and I said, you know, I've just seen this and and I think there's you know a way to go that you know at some point we we should be able to use this to color comic books. Mm. And they all just kind of like, yeah, sure, Bob, okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I, I, you know, had a, had a I, my first approach was, okay, let me get in touch with the people who, you know, created this, this package, this program. And I don't remember whether it was the actual official paint box program or it was some other, but I sent them a letter and, and you know, basically said, well, you know, if we were able to get the artwork into the computer mm. and color it, then we should be able, instead of creating the, the printed um, image on a piece of paper, create a film negative instead that I can make a printing plate from. And, you know, it was all, it was an abstract thing, but, you know, they were like, sure, yeah, we can, you know, basically print this picture on anything you want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even if you print so, it, even if you were to print it, it separated, and then have to take a photo of it for the plate, you know what I mean? You'd, you'd, you'd at least yeah. cut out one part of the process there, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I got, I found some other companies that were doing similar things and, and uh, started chasing after, uh, you know, with each one. And, you know, here's, here's the kind of artwork we have. We'd have to get it somehow scanned into the computer, then color it on the screen, and then create the film negatives. And... Um, Ended up with with uh, a variety of, of um, companies, you know, pursuing it one way or another. But most, of, if not all of them, came back with the same situation, which was, well, you'd have to have all of the black lines closed mm -hmm. so that you had a complete error. Because as soon as you hit the fill button, it's going to fill everything. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, unless it's stopped. And, you know, so you'd have to make the lines really thick and you'd have to, you know, you couldn't have any of this feathering and that. And I, I said, no. And so you have to get, and everyone was like, you have to get your artists to do this. And it's like, hmm. no, you don't understand. I can't like, get my artists to do anything. Yeah. <laughs> I need you to make the program deal with what they're doing. Yeah. I'm trying to get stuff on time, you know, without a... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because they're never going to do this. Right. And they shouldn't have and to. I, I, think, I think that was right, though, also. You know, with the, the technology has to meet the demand, not the other way around. Yeah, so, exactly. Uh, yeah, that it makes was, perfect it was sense. Not a, it was not a situation where, no, we're going to change the, the entire look of the comic books just so we can you know, make it work on the computer. I need you to make the computer deal with what I have. Mm -hmm. And um, so as I, as I was pursuing other, um, uh, you know, try, trying to find different different companies that could do it, uh, these two brothers came in they, from um, Ireland, mm -hmm. and their father had started, and they were now working in a company that did traditional color separations. And they were just looking to get into um, doing color separations, you know, on computer, coloring on computer. And um, so they came in, and I, I gave them what I gave everybody else who, who wanted to try, you know, some pages of a, of a story and uh, some stats and, and said, here's the black and white, here's the color guide, you know, mm. turn it into. Show me um, what you can do, right? Yeah. And so they went away for about, uh, you know, it was like six months, I think, before I heard from them again. And then they called up one day and they said, uh, you know, we think we have what you can do, what 
what you, what you are looking for. We think we can do it. And they came in and they had um, taken the, the, um, the color guide and translated it into um, a color proof that uh, they had generated from the computer. Hmm. And I said, this looks pretty good. And they said, well, we have it only on one machine, and it's in Dublin, mm-hmm. and so we need you to come over and look at it. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay. And uh, so they flew me over to Dublin, and I spent uh, three or four days there. And um, we had scanned in another page, and I sat there coloring it and doing some you know, minimal special effects kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And then I actually drew a... Uh, a uh, little comic strip of Bob's trip to Ireland and uh, <laughs> did that whole thing on a page and printed that out. I still awesome. have that someplace. Oh, wow. And, uh, but I said, to, well, this looks like it'll work. And they had figured out how to get around the um, the issue of the, the bleeding through right. by um, programming it so that the color you were going to put into the spot, if you went around the entire area and closed off any of the holes with that color, with that color, right? It would stop mm. at the color, which is still the so way things like, are basically colored today. Actually, that's the exact same yeah. way they got to do them now. Is you, you got to find all the gaps and then fill it. Yeah. That often. You think you've, it's like it's like doing plumbing, you know, you think you found all the gaps, then you fill it and you find out, oh my God, I, I, yep. I missed one. <laughs> yep. So then I came back to New York and, and uh, the following week at the meeting and, you know, by then they were used to, yeah, I'm still looking for a way. And I said, I think we found one. And I showed them the samples and, and uh, you know, I was still getting the, nah, that's never going to work. And you had a very nice trip to Ireland and, you know, a nice vacation, but this is not going to change the, the way comic books look. And I, you know, just kind of was like, well, I think it is. Mm-hmm. And um, so I went back to, to dealing with the, the Malone brothers and, and um, you know, we tried to do some more stuff. And finally they were like, this is not working fast enough for us. <laughs> so they called they called me up and they said we're bringing the computer to New York. Wow. And we're going to put put set it up in a in a suite in a hotel across the street from DC. And uh, you can bring anybody and everybody you want to come and see it and use it and do whatever. And so they came over, they set it up. And uh, so, you know, I brought over uh, pretty much all of the editors, some of the artists, the production people, anybody who wanted to come. Mm. And, um, you know, they were able to, they scanned in some stuff and and, uh, everybody was able to to play with it. And they all walked out like, geez, it really does work. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, "Uh uh-huh. I told you so. I told you this would happen. So... Now, how was it done um, normally? Was it were they working on a Wacom tablet or was it with mouse? Do it was remember? it was mostly with a mouse. Wow, that sounds. Well, I think I think that after the, <laughs> afterwards they they managed to do it with like a, a a stylus kind of thing. Yeah, but you know, I mean, it was basically the first the first we were doing was with a mouse. And when I went over to 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 check it out, it was with the mouse. And I think when they brought it over here for the first time, it was the same. So uh, we made it a, an agreement with them, and uh, I think we were going to do a couple of books. We actually um, brought a couple of the machines in-house, and we were doing it in-house. 
And uh, in fact, one of the first, if not the first, book that we did was Hero Hotline, which I had written. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, the very first issue, the day after Thanksgiving, in whichever year that was, I think it was 88, but I've lost track, you know, 30 mm -hmm. years later. Uh, I went into the office, I was in the office the entire day and was actually doing the color separations for the first few pages of the story because I wanted to see, you know, by myself, how long was it going to take to do a page? Uh, sure. And I think I got about two and a half pages done and I did some minimal uh, effect kinds of things. I put in um, where the walls met the floors. I put in some a couple little uh, extra things and um, flames coming out of somebody and changing the you know out of his hand and changing the color as it came out. And um, you know, so we we started doing a few books in house and then uh, expanded that and we eventually ended up. I think we had four machines. And we were out in the, the uh, branch office that was set up in Flushing. Yeah. Uh, with uh, a bunch of guys there doing them. It's, you know, now this is, I could I don't think they would even know how to color it any other way. Other you know ways, what I mean? Yeah. I, yeah. And, and, you know, down at, down at the printing press, there's no one mixing ink, really, uh, or mixing for proof. There's none of that. None of the powder proofs. Those are all things nope, of the absolute all, past. Gone. It's all the computer. You want to change the color? You push the button on the computer. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's like, it's... Okay. Bring this up. Take that down. It's, and it's all. Uh, you know, the computer program says it's this percent size dot. That's what size dot it is. Yeah. And if, if you've looked at, I don't know if you looked at a comic recently, but the gradations they get are. Although now the, the whole printing process is so wildly different. Do you have any specific memories about digital justice at all when it came? I know it was delivered. Finished, right? They just gave you files. Yeah, it came in, and we, we got basically, I think, a set of proofs. And uh, I presume that uh, was it, Mike Gold, who was the editor. Uh, um, I don't know if he was the editor. He just did the. Uh, I think he just did the intro because he was the editor oh. for Shatter. Uh, ah, I okay. don't have the book. The editor is the editor is listed as Denny O'Neill. Okay. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. So then I would presume that Denny had uh, at least gotten a script of some sort or some idea of what the story was going to be, and uh, but it was more along the lines of this is this is the story this is the um, the the package and. Uh, you know, I, I I think at that point when when it came in, it was like okay, unless there's something really major here, nothing's going to get changed. Right. Mm. And uh, and it was really, I mean, they, what they were selling was the gimmick. Sure. Yeah. More than anything else, and you know that the, the Batman comic book done on the computer. I'll, I'll tell you one more story that we can okay. throw in here. Sure. And, and I mean, it's kind of you know, well, how much did I really foresee? Um, <laughs> Way back in, in uh, most of the 80s and the 90s, uh, there used to be a comic convention on Long Island that, that still ostensibly goes on, Icon, which is out at uh, Stony Brook okay. mm -hmm. at the State University. And uh, I was one of the regular guests, and uh, Howard Margolin, who was one of the organizers, also had a radio show on the uh, college radio. Uh, station, hmm. and every year he would interview me, and uh, at the at Icon, and it'd be like, "What's coming up from DC, and what's going on, that, that kind of thing." And so he had interviewed me right after I had come back from the visit to Ireland. Uh -huh. 
And in this particular interview, I was going on about, um, you know, how, how this was going to change the way we colored the books and, uh, you know, that we were going to go from having uh, 64 colors to having 16 million colors <laughs> and um, that eventually I could see a time when the artists would actually be painting the artwork on the computer right. rather than painting it on canvas on paper and have translated right and you know so i mean in this is 1988 this sounds so fanciful like yeah that's <laughs> gonna happen you know and i mean he was kind of a little bit uh hmm interesting yeah kind of. <laughs> <laughs> you know you're, you're kind of crazy Bob. Along you know that? Fl flying cars and uh robots that yeah exactly through, right? <laughs> we'll have robots that will vacuum our houses for us we'll have a computer that will answer all our questions for us so we jump ahead about five or six years and Howard had been making these these tapes of them and always saying, I have a tape of the, the interview, and it ran on such as, I have to give you the tapes. And so it was on cassettes. Uh -huh. And so it had to be like 93, 94. I was out at, at Icon, and my son Chuck was with me. And uh, Howard caught up to me. He says, I've got the tapes. Here, take the tapes. And so I said, okay, fine, thanks a lot. And it was like the last six years' worth of interviews. So we're driving home, and we're in the car, and I said to Chuck, I said, pop one of those tapes in. Let's see what, you know, what did I can say? And so we pop in the 1988 one, and here I am talking about what they're going to be able to do with computers and computer coloring. And all these, a lot of these things have now happened. Right. You know, it's six years later. We're computer coloring all the comics by this point, and yeah. you know they're, they're starting to do lettering on the on the computer. And, and Chucky's listening to this, and he's like, "When did you make this interview? When did you do this?" I said, six of us." I said, "Well, 1988. That's what it says on the tape, right?" He says. How did you know this? <laughs> you had I seen said, the future. Uh, this is what I was saying was going to happen. So, <laughs> you have any more predictions for us? Maybe we can uh, bank it <laughs> later, Bob. I mean, if you got any, <laughs> maybe any, maybe any stock tips or something like that. We'll, we'll leave them, uh, yeah, I wish. We'll, we'll take them off the air. Well, I got to say, I'm glad that the future you talked about came to pass and not the future as described in digital justice because <laughs> it looks pretty it looks pretty bad and it looks pretty dystopian in there so uh i'm glad that we do get some good quality comics out of it and i think that everyone owes you a uh, debt of gratitude and uh we definitely owe you a big thank you bob so thanks for coming back thanks so much to bob rizakis for lending his time and expertise to the subject it informs so much about the hype for uh, the book we just read batman digital justice that's right uh you know this like we said the thing about batman digital justice is that it's a gimmick and yeah. uh, bob helped to explain the gimmick of it and i think also the enthusiasm or lack there therefore by some of the gimmick of the time yeah. kind of like let us know how the world was, you know, and uh, it's very it's, cynical and <laughs> not sure that that was the way. It could be. Well, you, know, you got to think there's a lot of people always telling you a new way to reinvent the wheel. You know what I mean? And you're got to be Absolutely. a little got to be a little skeptical. But seeing where we are now, and you know what what Bob was talking about, it's amazing. Like you know, the, Bob was at the forefront of That's just the genesis a, of a it, new yeah. way that that comics were going to be made, almost top to bottom. I mean, you know, almost reinventing the medium in a lot of ways. And you could definitely certainly could. could 
argue that it was. And we'd be happy to argue that point if you want to write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic t-mail history or you can find us on Twitter at cosmic t-mail and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie Time at Ace Comics. We got our weekly writings over at WeirdScienceDCComics.com, and Chris has daily writings at Chris is on InfiniteEarth.com, where he is playing a little fast and loose lately. I might the, uh, be. You know, you, 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 the edict is to do a DC comic every day, and technically he is doing that. But he's he did a uh, Tom Strong one today. You did a, mm-hmm. a Jim Lee it's comic. Wildstorm. Wildstorm. Yeah, it's like yeah, that is all in there. But you know, you definitely. <laughs> I'm really working the Infinite Earths uh, gimmick. Here. I don't see the bullet logo in the corner. I get it. You know, I'm like, <laughs> no. wait a second, what is this thing? But every day he does one, and he's coming real close. Now he is still gunning down for those uh, that action comics. Breakdown. I know you did a, mm-hmm. at least one issue this week, so a couple, yeah, yeah. Got to get a hundred pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, how, how close are you? Do you know? Or I'm at like seventy-seven, I think. Wow. So uh, it's probably gonna be like one every other day for it's the next. Gonna, it's uh, gonna start month. coming in very. Yeah, it's a very lot, lot sooner than I thought. It's <laughs> <laughs> gonna be a very now, thick uh, action comics blog uh, very soon. It might just be. Uh, <laughs> you can check us out at weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where uh, we uh, put our show notes and links to. All of our haunts, uh, anywhere you can get us audio-like, and uh, even our uh, YouTube page, which uh, if you like uh, listening to YouTube videos while you're doing things in other tabs, hey, you might as well check us out. That's right. That would be at Weird Comics History YouTube slash YouTuber, right? We, we'll figure that out. I... Dot, dot HTML, dot gov. It's hard to, it, yeah, it's hard <laughs> to slip those. these things into the thing, but uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, we update the Weird Comics History blog every week now, and mm-hmm. uh, there might even be images or other extra little tidbits thrown in there for you to Indeed. snack on. We want to thank D. Ron Murphy again for picking this comic and sending us into this thing about the manufacturing of comics. Something I don't think people talk about enough. Really, no, I don't how, think so. How, they, how yeah. this sausage gets made, literally, or whatever. So that was <laughs> a good time, and thank you very much, Darren. Darren. Yes, it was a, it was a, yes, Darren. Yes, it Sorry. was a treat that we, uh, we probably would not have, uh, wouldn't have done otherwise. Yeah. Uh, also, huge thanks to the Answer Man, Bob Rizakis, for Absolutely. his, again, for his time, for his, uh, for his candor, and uh, for being such a cool guy. Yep, we had a great time talking to him, but I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? No, that'll do it. Well, until next time, folks, I want to see you on the treadmill digitally. See ya. See ya.